do this. Reed and Sarah, would you stand up real quick, just for a second? So this is Reed and Sarah Schaff, and uh, we're looking, we've been looking forward to this service, thank you, uh, to, to uh, commission them to missionary service. I believe that, well, is it okay this morning to speak by faith completely regardless of how well I, I preach this morning? Amen. This might be the worst message you've ever heard. Could be. <laughs> That's really kind. <laughs> I'll take. You, you've been here for a whole year, for sure. I, I get it now. <laughs> okay. I am so glad to be back here this morning. <laughs> uh, I, I know. I, I know. I'm just kidding. So. So this is what it is to be family, right? Um, so uh, um, I, I, I meant that, that just that when we come to the end of the service, regardless of the quality of the message that you hear this morning, I just believe that God's spirit is going to be here because whether it's spoken well or not, I believe the truth that's going to be shared is, is just that. It's truth. And because of that, the Holy Spirit is going to be present to sanction what takes place here this morning. I do believe that with all my heart. And so I, I believe that this is going to be a significant time for Reed and Sarah. And I believe it's going to be a significant time for this fellowship. Um, and, uh, and we have sung and we have uh, invited the Lord's presence here today. So, um, so I have great confidence that, uh, that this will be a significant time for us. I want to I want to just take a few moments this morning to work our way through a bit of a biblical understanding of what's happening today. What I want to get to at the end is just a few scriptures from First and Second Timothy. That's where we've been as a congregation for a, for the majority of this calendar year. We've been focused on what it means to be the church, and we've been doing that through First and Second Timothy because there Paul. Uh, teaches Timothy how to set up and establish the church and give some of the basic parameters upon which the church is supposed to function. What are we supposed to be about? What are we supposed to be doing? There, as, as, uh, as Paul mentors Timothy, he gives tremendous instruction to what it is to be the church. So we've been focused there throughout this, this, uh, uh, this year. I was going to say this early part of the year, but it's not the early part of the year anymore. We're, we're the last week of July here. So just a few things that I would like us to look at, what it means to be, uh, to be the church. This morning, what we're doing as the church is gathering to commission Reed and Sarah. So what do we mean by that? Um, hey, I'm just noticing that for some reason your name is misspelled. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's supposed to be two A's, not two F's. So um, uh, anyways, we'll just skip that slide. Um, uh, so let's look at what it means to commission someone. What is, what is it that we understand as the church about what it means to be commissioning missionaries? Uh, how many of you have ever been in a commissioning service? Raise your hands if you've been in a commission. That's more than I expected. Um, uh, so what is, the, what is the significance of this? Let me start this morning with what I'd like to call the power of the call. The power of the call. 
There's no substitute for a personal call. There is none. Uh, Reed and Sarah, we cannot give you a personal call from God this morning. The, the, the certainty that resides in a person's heart that they have been called by God to a specific ministry is something that, that takes place between that person and God and is ministered to them by the reality of the Holy Spirit present with them. It can come in a variety of ways. Many people have sat in missionary services and felt a call to ministry themselves. Many people have attended church youth camps and in their youth sensed a call to God, whether it was into pastoral ministry or, or uh, missionary service or some other form of ministry. Many have had that experience. Some, some have an experience of, of spending time alone with God and His Word and there, through a scripture, the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, I've called you to a life of serving me. Uh, and, and that's going to be your life's work, is to step into full-time Christian ministry or full-time Christian service. What do I mean by a call? I mean something like this, that at some point in time, there is birth, birth within an individual, an inward drive, an inward drive, an inner conviction. In fact, it would be an, an internal, I'm going to use the word compulsion, that is given by the Spirit of God that says, I must with my life do this. I must with my life do this. In my case, it was kicking and screaming, scratching and clawing, last thing I wanted to do with my life. But I experienced it as an unavoidable, inescapable, and insurmountable conviction from God that I would be living a life of disobedience if I did anything different. And so for me, as a believer at that time, it became maybe the most significant moment of surrendering to the Lordship of Christ in my life that I've ever experienced. Will I run my own life or will I allow God to run my life? Because I guarantee you, if I had run my own life, this is not what I would have been doing. This is not what I would have chosen. It was an issue of who runs your life? Will you obey? Will you submit? Now, I'm really thankful because there's many other people for whom the call comes as something joyful, something very willing, something very, <laughs> they sense privilege. Me, it was torture, okay? It was, it was, that was a me problem. That was just where I was at, okay? But the idea is that the call comes as something that we know between ourselves and God we, we have to do. It's intensely personal. Let me give you a few examples real quickly. This past week, um, in my personal devotions, I've been reading, I started reading through the book of Ezekiel. And, uh, and Ezekiel's call is, uh, is discussed very early in, in the book. Let me just read to you two passages real quickly. Ezekiel 1, verses 1 through 3. Now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Kibar among the exiles, the heavens were opened. That didn't happen to me. The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. 
On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of, Je of King Jehoiakim's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. All right? Now listen to what it says in chapter 2. Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people, who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor their words, though thistles and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Neither, feel, fe, uh, neither fear their words, nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. This was the call of Ezekiel. This was the call of Ezekiel to a life of prophetic ministry to the people of God. I want you to notice a couple things about this call. Notice, first of, all how, first of all, how specific the moment was. It was a very specific time in a specific place. It was, uh, it was in the 30th year on the fifth day of the fourth month by the river Kibar. That's when it all started. I mean, it is, it is precise. It is exact. It is very specific. Notice also the role of the Holy Spirit. That when God first begins to speak to him in, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. Notice the role of the Holy Spirit. And notice even the specificity of the call to ministry that is given to him. You are called to speak my word and to give my messages to a people that is rebellious and they're not going to hear you. Now, I'm just going to say it this way this morning. I hope Reed and Sarah have not received a call of futility like, I, like Ezekiel <laughs> received, right? I want you to know that I'm sending you forth to a ministry to people who are rebellious, to a people who will not respond to you, to a people that you may even be in danger because of giving my word to them. Regardless... I want you to speak my word to them, knowing full well in advance that it's a rebellious people that I'm sending you to. In other words, it would be something like this. Well, your ministry is going to have very limited success at best. Very limited success at best. Can I tell you this? I just want to say this to Reed and Sarah. Don't ever fall into the temptation of measuring the legitimacy of your call by the fruitfulness of your ministry. Amen. Don't ever do it. Don't ever do it. Sometimes, for reasons known only to God, He calls people to places and times where their ministry is difficult and doesn't bear immediate fruit. And it doesn't mean that you've missed the boat. I don't have explanations for why some people have these glorious, just resoundingly successful Apparently, ministries and others don't. I don't have explanations for it. 
I do know this. If God calls you, you are called to be faithful where he puts you. And as long as you're faithful to him, the fruit belongs to him. And when it's all said and done, he will reward, not according to what man sees, not according to the success that we can measure with our eyes. He will measure according to his estimate of your faithfulness to him. So don't let anything else get in the way. He calls you, you follow, you obey. And you let him be the Lord of the fruit. You let him be the Lord of the outcomes. There's plenty of other examples. There's Peter. I love Peter's example. Luke 22, 31 and 32. Jesus is having that conversation with Peter about Peter betraying him, about Peter's failure. And Jesus just looks at him and says, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you're converted, you'll strengthen your brethren. You know, one of the beauties of Peter's call is that Jesus began to call Peter to a life of ministry, serving the brethren by strengthening the brethren at the very moment that Jesus knew Peter was about to have the biggest failure of his life. He was going to deny Jesus three times. And Jesus knew that this enormous failure was coming. In other words, God does not just call and commission perfect people who have reached a certain level of spiritual stature. He calls and commissions people that are like everybody else. People whose sins and whose failures have placed them in need of the grace of God and he calls them and he enables them and he takes their story of failure and he transforms them and he redeems them and he turns them into something useful. It's a remarkable thing that is done by the grace of God. Right? He doesn't call perfect people. Sarah, Reed, let me relieve you of that burden. You're not a perfect person? Well, get in line. Right? Get in line. Because neither are the rest of us. Neither are any of us. Your lives will be your unique testimony of God's grace at work in you. And through that testimony, he's going to use you to touch other people's lives. It's part of what he does. Peter was not a perfect man. In the Gospel of John, we have that appearance of Jesus to Peter, telling Peter that it's time for him to feed his sheep. He takes this, the brokenness of Peter, he brings it to a place of redemption and healing, and then he sends Peter out to strengthen his people. That's the story of all those that have been purchased by the blood of Christ. One last example, real quickly, is the example of Paul. There's, there's a number of things. Uh, I, I would like to take the time to read the passages. I'm not going to do them, them all this morning. But in, uh, in, Paul's, in Paul's call, um, there's a couple of interesting features. The first one is that his salvation and his call to ministry were almost simultaneous. Right? That, that Paul is called to serve the Lord at the same time he's knocked off the horse and told he needs to get saved. It's a remarkable thing. Now, yeah, Paul was a certain special, special man in the, in the economy of God, in, the, in, the, in the, the plans of God. But it is interesting to notice that. I think, however, the thing that I find most fascinating, most interesting, and, and most significant for us today is that Paul's call to ministry, even though 
it was, it was one of the most dramatic experiences with God that anyone ever had in Scripture. Um, it wasn't finished. It wasn't finished when the Lord Jesus appeared to him. The Lord Jesus appears to him. He gets knocked off his, off his horse. Jesus has some things to say to him. And then sends Paul to a place, and instead of continuing the conversation with Paul personally, sends another believer named Ananias to go finish the work. I want you to go tell him. I want you to go pray for him. I want you, Ananias, to be involved in, this, in the, the life of this man who is going to be transformed savingly and then commissioned into a life of ministry. Now, there's things about that that I just don't know and that I don't understand. Jesus certainly could have finished the conversation with, with Paul himself. He didn't have to use Ananias. But for this morning, let me just make this point abundantly clear. We have to understand that for whatever reasons are known to the mind of God, He has chosen to work through His people. He has chosen to work that way. I will never forget reading about this in the writings of Watchman Nee. Um, the way Watchman Nee said it, I found so, so powerful, so profound, and so useful. The way he said it was this. He said, God delights to put the work of his hands into the hands of his people. He delights to put the work of his hands into the hands of his people. I have since referred to it as the greatest occupational risk ever taken. Right? That, that, that something so important would be delegated by the most competent being in the universe to the most incompetent beings in the universe... Well, maybe if we were worms, we'd be slightly less competent, but okay, you get the idea. But that he, being almighty God, delegates to us the responsibility of doing his work on his behalf, right? It's a remarkable thing that he has done this. And so he appears to a man, he speaks into the heart of a man named Ananias, a man who, by the way, is afraid for his life when thinking about going to see the Apostle Paul, at the time known as Saul, afraid for his life and has to overcome that fear in order to do the thing that God has told him to do, and God trusts that this man is going to do it because he's got something he wants to do in the life of, of a... a a servant named Saul who's going to turn into the Apostle Paul. Listen, I'm just going to say it again this way. I find it completely remarkable that God chooses to use people like me and you. I find it amazing. I find it amazing that he set his attention on Reed and Sarah and said, I'm going to use you to carry the gospel to people. I'm going to use you. I find it remarkable that God is going to use this congregation to do something on his behalf this morning that sanctions Reed and Sarah for ministry and that sends them out of this place 
empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work that he's called them to do. I find it remarkable that God lets us participate in anything that he wants to do at all, but he does. And in fact, he not only lets us participate, he makes it some of the most important things, he makes it key to the work he wants to do. In other words, what we do is actually significant. What we do actually matters. What we do is actually a vital part of the way God designed his work and his kingdom and his world to function. We have a significant role to play in all of this. We get to be privileged to be part of that. All right. All that said, the power of the call. Read and Sarah, no one can give it to you. It's something that comes by the Holy Spirit and it's something that he ministers directly to your hearts. You have to have that, that settling. God's spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God. That's the saving call. The call to ministry is something similar. That call that says, in my heart of hearts, I know that God has called me to a life of service. The power of the call. The second thing is the power of the church. The power of the church. There are many reasons why I believe it's difficult for us 21st century Americans, to understand God's perspective on his church. I believe there's lots of obstacles. Let me just list a few of them for you. The first one is our traditions. We have a certain difficulty in understanding the church because of our traditions. So there's all kinds of parts of this. We use the word church to describe a building. And we could easily get confused into thinking of the building as church. We also use the word church to describe a particular schedule. Oh, what are you doing Sunday morning? Oh, I'm going to church. What, we refer to, what we're referring to is a building in which we hold a service. But the reality is the church is us. The church is us, right? Our traditions, the ways we go about doing things, have a certain way of obscuring the reality of how God views the church, of hiding the way God views the church. Our traditions can be part of that problem. The, um, uh, the second thing is our culture. Our culture. I believe this is one of the biggest ones. We've talked about this a fair amount, I feel like, lately, but let me just mention it again. We are a, we as Americans are part of a, of a, a hyper-individualistic culture. You ask, you ask in, in, in American understanding, the ultimate man is John Wayne, because he needs nobody, right? He can handle it by himself. Big, tough, rugged, hit you, pound you, shoot you. He's got it under control, right? The ultimate self-made man. These are the ways we talk, and they're the things that we glorify in our culture. And they bear absolutely no resemblance to the church of God in the New Testament. Zero. Right? We have these ways of thinking about things. We are rugged individualists, and we don't always understand well the communal mindset of the New Testament and the fact that God has called us to be I don't mean to demean any individual. 
cogs in a wheel, parts of a whole, right? Just read 1 Corinthians and you're going to run across the fact that you're just one member of a body and that you need the other members of the body and can't do it without them. You have your place. You're important as an individual. But in the end, you are part of God supplying a little bit of life through you to a much larger body that extends far beyond any one of us. And we all, we all participate in supplying the little bit that we supply to the good of the whole. The body of Christ. It's, it's something different than rugged individualism. Let me just mention this one real quickly. Because I, I, I think that this is something that is probably passed out of consciousness for most of us but has just become baked in to Protestant churches. And that is our aversion to Catholicism. Our aversion to Catholicism. There are certain errors that because, because there was a split from Roman Catholicism and the Protestant churches began, there were certain errors that we wanted to avoid. And unfortunately, what has happened is that in the avoiding of those errors, sometimes we have gone to places that are just too far. That are just too far. Give you a quick example. The Catholic doctrine of trans transubstantiation is held to be false by all Protestant churches. But in many Protestant churches, Holy Communion is nothing but a symbolic commemoration of the death of Christ. That's what it is. It's something we do, and most people think of it as, well, we know the bread represents the body, and the, and the cup represents the blood, and we remember that Jesus died for us. But the New Testament takes this matter of communion and makes it something so substantial that... Listen, I'm not going to get into what this means right now. That's not the point of the message. But it's important enough in the eyes of God that if it's not lived outright, there were people in the Corinthian church that died over doing this wrong. Okay? It was a big deal in the eyes of God, and it still is. The point of it is this. Yes, it's, in a sense, commemorative. But I think the best way to explain it is to say that communion and this has been a little bit lost in our Protestant churches, is a means of grace to us. That every time we receive communion, God intends to be present by His Holy Spirit and re-reveal Jesus to us in a way that brings new life and new grace and new strength for each day to us. And that communion is not just, remember, communion is in this moment, God is present to give life to his people anew. Not saving them over again, but giving them that fresh infusion of, of life that is needed for every day. A reminder of what it means to be born again. Since we're living in the COVID era, I'll use the analogy, right? You know, the moment you got saved, you got inoculated against the effects of sin. But uh, to avoid political argumentation, we'll go straight to shingles. You need a booster, okay? Some of us need a booster. And communion is one of the boosters God uses. 
Yes, he did what he needed to do when he saved us. But yes, the life that we receive there needs to be refreshed and renewed periodically. And I want you to know the next time you receive communion, you're not just going through one of the rituals of the church. You're not even just remembering what Christ did for you. I want you to know that the next time you celebrate communion, God, by the Holy Spirit, is coming to us in that moment and refreshing us and renewing us within and ministering life to us so that we walk out freshly energized to serve the one who gave himself for us. There's life present in that moment. But what did we do? We wanted to run away from Catholicism so hard that we that we threw out some of the baby with the bathwater. And I got to tell you that in all the abuses that come in certain forms of spiritual leadership, too often the Protestant church has forgotten about the authority of the church of Jesus Christ. We have recognized the errors of Rome and we have said we don't want to be that. But we have forgotten that in the church there is something, something authoritative, something profound, something powerful, something that God sanctions that is beyond what he does in any one individual. I just got to tell you, brothers and sisters, he lives within you, every single one of us individually, but he holds his church as something special. The local church the church big worldwide is, is his bride. But there is something precious you read through the New Testament. There is something precious, something deeply meaningful, something powerful about the local assembly of believers. And I'm going to give you just a few examples really quickly. In Matthew 18, we're told that there is a special presence that comes when even just two or three gather together in his name. How many believe you can, you can sense God's presence all by yourself? Amen? But how many of you know that there is a special presence of God that is reserved for when we come together as God's people? There is something profound that happens when two or three or more gather together in his name. Why? Because God looks at his church and he says, where two or three of you gather I guarantee you that my presence will be there. There will be my presence among you. That's a special promise to the gathering of believers. By the way, uh, individuals are capable of being wrong, and I'm not saying that everything every church does is right, but I will say it this way. When you read that passage Matthew 18, 15 through 17, it goes something like this. If your brother sinned against you, go to him. If he won't listen to you, take two or three with you and go to him. And if he won't listen to two or three of you, take it to the church. Take it to the church. Why? Because the ultimate responsibility for dealing with a sinning, erring believer rests not with an individual or even one individual plus two or three others. It rests with the church. It rests with the church. Why? Because there's protection that comes when the church has to find the mind of Christ together. Right? It's, it's a broader, wider 
circle of, of discerning and understanding and knowledge and giftings, right? It's not just the prophet saying, bring the hammer down. It's the mercy saying, oh, let's wait and see God a little bit longer and make sure and I'm, I'm being silly. But you get the idea. It's the coming together of God's people that allows us to say with some degree of certainty, it is time to deal with this situation. This person has resisted all counsel and now the church can do what the church must do, has dreaded doing and didn't want to do. We're going to deal with this sin. And if we have to put them out, we'll put them out. My brothers and sisters, I want to say it to you this way this morning. The responsibility that God has given to the church is something that when the church acts as the church, God sanctions the decision of the church because the presumption and the instruction of his word is that he has, by his spirit, worked through the church to bring them to this place. There's a lot of this I don't know what to do with. Because I'm not going to sit here and claim that every decision that every church has made has always been right. But I am going to say it this way. I believe that where you discern a body of believers that has a sincere heart for God and is honestly seeking for his leading, that it's going to be hard for them to get off track. And that God's spirit will speak through the church when he speaks to his people as a body. As a body. Oh man, we've got all sorts of ways of doing this. We take votes because that's what we do. We're Americans. We vote on things, right? We have all these ways of doing things, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just practical ways of trying. You know, listen, it's, it's no worse than being in the upper room and saying, hey, let's cast lots, <laughs> okay? It's, uh, it's just the, the point of it is this, that the church can have a tremendous confidence that God has vested the church with authority to make certain decisions and that when those decisions are made, God's spirit sanctions them. He sanctions them because the church is involved. I'm going to skip just to keep moving this morning. The church has a vital role in recognizing and in releasing called and gifted people. It's what happened in Acts 13, 1 through 3. The example is Paul's commissioning. In Paul's commissioning, the people of God, the church, was devoted to a time of prayer and fasting, and the Spirit of God spoke to them and said, separate to me, Paul, Saul, and Barnabas. This is the, 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 the call that I've placed on them. Give them, separate them, send them out to the work that I have called them to. It was through the church that this was spoken. It was through the church, in times of the church seeking God together, that Paul was released to the ministry that God had called him to. And so, his, his personal call reflects what he says to Timothy. And this is what I want to close with. Just real quickly, what he says to Timothy. Here's the power of the commission. So, let's just look at it real quickly through, through 1 and 2 Timothy. In 1 and 2 Timothy, here's kind of the steps that we see. First, uh, first Tim- uh, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 1.6. We, uh, we dealt extensively with this early in the year. Uh, but 2 Timothy 1.6. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle, again, uh, kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you 
through the laying on of my hands. Let me just say this about the one who's being commissioned. Timothy is being commissioned in First and Second Timothy. His gifting, Paul says, is related to what happened when I personally laid my hands on you. Now, um, there's a lot that goes into this. In, in, um, uh, notice, notice how, how personal this is. So there's an aspect of mentorship in this. Let me say it this way. When I was seeking ordination, the pastor that I was serving under came to me um, because um, I was going to get ordained the way we do things in the Assemblies of God. I was going to get ordained by a group of men who didn't know me from Adam. <laughs> they knew almost nothing about me. And as a result, they had to have the local church sanction me. And so they asked the pastor that I served under to write a letter of recommendation. And when he wrote the, re the letter of recommendation, before he mailed it, he came to me. He's a kind of dramatic guy, and he had it in his hand. And he said, as I recall, he said to me, I'm about to send a letter of recommendation that is going to encourage this body of men to ordain you. My reputation my name will be forever tied to yours through this letter that I write. Remember that. Remember that. What's the point? The point is that in our lives, we need people that are up close personal with us enough. They know us. They know our failures. They know our weaknesses. They know our strengths. And through it all, they are able, in the most personal way possible, I know you in that, in that deep way that, that very few other people know you. And I can lay my hands on you and say to you, I recognize the gift that is in you. And by the laying on of my hands, I recognize you. I recognize you. It's the personal aspect of it. Someone up close and personal like that with us. It's part of the process of commissioning. Someone that knows us that well, that has personal knowledge, can, can have personal accountability, can sanction us personally, can recommend us personally. That just seems to be a part of the process that God has established. Notice that the laying on of hands is a part of this. In 1 Timothy 5.22, he tells us, uh, Paul told, told Timothy, don't lay hands on any man suddenly. In other words, you can't know him for two weeks and say God's called you. And you better get up close and personal with him for a while before you start making declarations like that. Make sure you know him. Right? Don't lay hands on him suddenly. The second one, there's a the personal aspect. There's the laying on of hands. Then 1 Timothy 4.14 there's the role of the presbytery. Notice that Paul just said that you have a gift that was in you through the laying on of my hands. But in chapter 4, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says this. He writes, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. The laying on of the hands of the presbytery. 
In other words, we don't know exactly how this happened. If Paul did it first and then the presbytery did it later, or if Paul was like the one who laid hands on him and everyone else kind of gathered around. We don't have any details, but here's what we know. The gift that is in you, Paul says, is by the laying on of my hands, and it's by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. That would be our equivalent of the elders. That there has to be a sanctioning body bigger than just one man, the elders that lay their hands on you and sanction you and commission you to this work of ministry. The elders. It's the pattern of Matthew 18, of Paul saying, uh, uh, of Jesus saying, one person alone is not enough to render a verdict. And then, since one man's not enough, let's get two or three. Let's get some elders together and let's deal with it then. And then here's what's beautiful about it, is that following that pattern, what Paul says to Timothy is this, I laid my hands on you, the presbytery laid my hands on you, but then he says in chapter 6, verse 12 to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's the church. That's the church. You did it publicly, Timothy. The confession of faith that you had, the confession of who you are in Christ, was made before the entire body. It was many witnesses. He repeats it in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... These entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what do we see? We see this ever-widening circle that ends with the local church. I laid my hands on you. The presbytery laid their hands on, on you. You confessed before the church. I charged you with things personally in the presence of the many witnesses. And there, all of this got signed, sealed, and delivered so that Timothy, the, the things that have been entrusted to you, you are now supposed to pass on to other faithful people who will then pass it on from their circles. This is the call of the New Testament. This is the way that works in the New Testament. The church had its role in saying, we have heard Timothy. We heard his confession. We have witnessed the laying on of hands. We heard the things that Paul spoke over him. And so we send you. And so we send you. So here's my conclusion for you today. Um, sorry, I didn't click that fast enough. Here's my conclusion for you today. I'd like you to take these things with you really quickly, and we're about to, to pray over Reed and Sarah. The first thing is this. The church has God-given authority in spiritual matters. We sanction, and God does also. Now, this is a serious moment. This is a serious moment. I believe that God... You ever heard in a wedding uh, a preacher say something like, by the power vested in me, invested in me, by the state of Pennsylvania. I mean, that's basically what we're doing right now. What we are saying is, 
by the authority invested in the church by the Holy Spirit of God. We, the church, sanction you, Reed, and you, Sarah, into the service that God has called you to. We confess. We, we recognize. We acknowledge your gift. And we send you out. And we believe that the authority of God is behind this. It's a sober thought. It's a very sobering thought. Secondly, from 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, I want to say to Reed and Sarah, listen to this. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Reed and Sarah, I don't care how hard it gets. You may suffer for the cause of the gospel. You may suffer for the call of the ministry. Read and Sarah, the call to you is even in suffering, go forth and raise up the next generation of faithful believers who will heed your teaching and who will carry the gospel to people around them. You are part of the, the, the mystical work of the church by which the church has never failed for 2,000 years because a faithful generation has passed on the gospel to a faithful generation. And that work of ministry is being given to you specifically today. Endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Take upon yourself the responsibility of passing on the gospel to other faithful people who will pass on the gospel. That's the work that you've been called to today. 2 Timothy 4, whoops, could you bring that back? There we go. 2 Timothy 4, read and Sarah, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, re exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. The call to you today is preach the word. Use it as your weapon of warfare. Use it also as the medicine of healing in every situation before all people in all conditions. One you might have to reprove, another rebuke, another exhort. Always patience. Always instruction. Always using God's word as the tool that he has equipped you with. That's what you're called to. And we urge you to carry the gospel, to preach the gospel. And the last thing I'll say is, church, as we stand with Reed and Sarah, this commissioning means that we are committing ourselves to give. We support Reed and Sarah financially. We're committing ourselves to giving to them in their ministry. We are committing ourselves to pray for them. And we are committing ourselves to being a support system for them. Listen. Reed and Sarah, because of the call of God upon their lives, may from time to time experience and come across special, unique times of need in their lives. 
if they call on us, they had better find us faithful to be a resource to them, whether that means counsel, whether that means prayer, whether that means they need a place to hide out for a few weeks or a few months, a place of rest, a place that's safe for them. It means that we have committed ourselves as a body that is sending them out. We have committed ourselves as a body to be available to them as their resource. And if we do what we do today before God, then we better be prepared to uphold our end of the deal. Right? That we will be faithful to them in our giving, in our praying, and in whatever support they need. We are, we're home base. Remember playing tag as a kid? You get to home. What happens when you get to home? You're safe. You're home free. Nobody can tag you. You're not it anymore. Right? This is home base for them. This is safe place for them. This is a place where they will find people that love them, care for them, and will minister to them. Any time of need. Any time of need. This is what we're committing ourselves to. This is what it means to commission. Reed and Sarah, we send you. We send you. Reed and Sarah, we're behind you. We're with you. We'll support you in any way we can. May God give us grace as a fellowship to be faithful to them in this. And may God give them grace to be faithful to him in the work that he's called them to. Amen? I'd like to ask if, if uh, Reed and Sarah would come forward this morning. And I'm going to ask everyone to stand. Once Reed and Sarah come up, um, I know that, that one of our elders is away today. So I'm going to ask if uh, Jeff and Trevor, if you'd come up this morning. And then behind them, I'd like to ask if uh, Mike and Christine would come up. Are there other family members of Reed and Sarah's this morning? I'm sorry. If your family, come up. Okay? If your family, come up. Um, what's going to be the easiest way to do this? Yeah, if you guys would just step down there. Everyone else... Jeff and Trevor, would you come down here by them? And I want you, you as elders to lay hands on these two. And then I want family to gather around them. Make, make as much room as possible. I want family to gather around them. And we're going to get as many hands on them as we can get on them this morning. Okay? And the rest of us are going to join in in prayer this morning. And, and I know that not every church does things the same way. And I know that not everything is equally comfortable to everybody. But I want to ask that we do this. It doesn't have to be loud, but I want to ask that this congregation, everybody, that, that you overcome your OCD for the next, the next few minutes, your, not, not your OCD, your, your ADD. I know there's going to be voices and they're going to be distracting. I'm going to ask you for five minutes, two minutes, whatever, to overcome that and to pray aloud for Reed and Sarah so that they can hear the voices of God's people praying for them. They're not going to be able to make out specific words. They're not going to be listening to your prayer. But this is an opportunity for them to hear the people of God, the church of God, lift them before the Lord in prayer. I want us to do that this morning, to take a moment to, 
to bring them before the throne of grace and to pray for them in their, in their ministry. So if we could do that this morning, would you pray with me? And then in just a moment, we're going to close together. But let's lift our voices to the Lord and let's pray for Reed and Sarah today.